This episode of the Anti-Heroes Podcast with Zach Blair is presented by Thunder Road Guitars. Thunder Road Guitars is the Pacific Northwest's best source for premium, new, used, and vintage guitars, amplifiers, and pedals. Online or in their Seattle and Portland shops, you'll find fantastic customer service and a terrific vibe. I personally always make a stop at Thunder Road Guitars in Seattle. Uh, they're a great bunch of guys, and it's just not a complete Seattle trip unless I go and say hi and see what uh, wonderful stuff they have. These are real people offering real service, folks. Uh, use code ANTIHEROES10 to get 10% off at www.thunderroadguitars.com and tell them I sent you. Hey guys, this is Zach from the Anti-Heroes Podcast, and I want to welcome our newest sponsor to the show, DistroKid. DistroKid helps musicians get their music on all the major streaming platforms, and artists keep 100% of their royalties. Can you believe that? Anti-Heroes listeners get 30% off at distrokid.com slash VIP slash Anti-Heroes. Again, that's distrokid.com slash VIP slash Anti-Heroes. Thank you so much and support all the folks at DistroKid because they're they're doing amazing work and we couldn't be happier to have them on board. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors over at Jim Dunlop and MXR Pedals. We couldn't be luckier to have these guys on board with us. I personally use these products and you should too. Find out more about them at jimdunlop.com. Let's get on to the podcast. And welcome to the Anti-Heroes Podcast with your host, Zach Blair. I am Zach Blair. I'm going to go ahead and say uh, I want to thank you guys for listening. I have had the wonderful chance to meet some of you on the Rise Against Band shows. We have just, uh, we've done, I don't know when you're listening to this or when this is coming out, but I am fresh off of the our Metro uh, residency in Chicago to celebrate the 40-year anniversary of the wonderful uh, Cabaret Metro. Uh, I got to meet a lot of you guys that have been listening to this podcast, and it was overwhelming. It, it sort of uh, warmed my cockles. Uh, okay, so moving on, let's get to my guest today. My guest today is just the astounding guitar player Ed Rodriguez from the band Deerhoof and man if you don't listen to Deerhoof do yourself a favor and listen to anything that's Deerhoof because god they just give you so much as a fan um so anyway I will shut up and uh let you be the judge and let you quote unquote meet the wonderful Ed Rodriguez Hey, Ed. Hey there. Hi, how's it going, man? Uh, you know, I, I've, I've said this a few times, and I, I don't know you IRL, but I look forward to meeting you sometime. But I've always admired you and your work. And, man, if you're a guitar player, holy shit, you are an amazing guitar player, man. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. It's a deep dive with your stuff. It's like it's dense guitar, but 
it doesn't come off as dense for the sake of dense, but man, there's a lot of uh, conversation going on. And that's what I thought was most compelling. I'm also in a guitar duo, a guitarnership, if you will. And uh, is, is that how you guys, do you kind of do the weaving thing where one guy is, you're kind of always sort of accentuating and complimenting each other? Well, I have a very lucky situation where I happen to meet some really key people very early in my life. Like, and John, the other guitarist in Deerhoof, uh, is one of them. We met when we were like 21, 22 years old. Uh, the drummer that I was playing with at the time, like, became friends with one of John's friends and all this. And we, and we ended up meeting. Uh, John came to see my band at the time and then wanted to play together. So we, we did. And, and I've always been a real sort of private person sure. and I, I don't work with that many people. And, but it was like meeting John, um, we completely clicked right away and we've been able to grow uh, together for like over 20 years. So a lot of my style, a lot of the way that I write completely came about because it was because I, I knew John, because I knew somebody else that could play. John could play anything that I could play. Like just coincidentally, we both had the style where um, we, we both play with a pick in our fingers. Okay. So um, like we, we can do like intricate things or, or like fast, just pick things. We both had like a real similar aesthetic. And so we met and at this time where we were both like just trying to figure out what the hell is going on, like what is what, what do we want to do? So um, I feel like we learned about like guitar improvisation and all these things together where it was really a thing of just like um, us sitting together and just like any crazy idea. It was like the safest environment of just like I could read about something that day, like um, from some like classical composer, some um, avant-garde, like and be like, be like, oh, uh, let's play this painting today right. you know let's or, or or just or you know like these real abstract thoughts like graphic notation these different things you know just anything i read happen to read about so it was this environment that was like every day you could be like hey what happens if we do this and to have somebody there who was like yeah let's try that instead of just like you know sometimes you play with people and they're like well why oh, right. why would we want to do that and you're like you're like let's just try it and it's like well why i i know it's not going to work why do it and you're like well we could have tried it already yeah, rather than have, argue about yeah. it <laughs> you fucking asshole yeah, you know yeah, <laughs> totally yeah. so i mean and this isn't this isn't such a precious thing that we can't just like make mistakes and try things and learn and yeah. you know and, and so John was like that for me. So in a way, we started a lot of the writing. We developed a language together. And a lot of the writing, we look at it like it's one big guitar. So, you know, it, it might be a thing where it's like I write a chord that has six notes in it or something. Um, I'll look at those notes and try and find the most like rock grouping of three of those notes for both guitars. Wow. And then we'll both play that chord at the same time. So we'll be playing these massive chords. But we'll do it in a way that if you take anything like a, a triad and move it like a half step apart, all of a sudden it's like this dissonant craziness that one person could never play. Sure. But it's a simple thing. And because you're making it easy on yourself, you can both attack it like a rock guitarist. Yeah. You know, you, like, because that's what I think happens to a lot of real technical musicians is they'll like write something where it's like, oh, this chord is like a seven fret stretch mm -hmm. and I have to hit all the notes or it doesn't quite work. Mm -hmm. And then they get in a live scenario and it's like, there's no way they're hitting the chord. You know, yeah. like, things are going. Yeah. It's like John and I will will write everything where it's like we can do these real dense um, harmonies and and melodies and stuff, but we can still play them like rock guitars because at our heart, like I'm a hundred percent a rock guitarist. Yeah, like no matter what I'm doing, you know. I remember pictures of Alan Holdsworth, and it was always that oh, yeah. like yeah. backwards, yeah. you know, the index yeah, know. fingers on the first fret, oh, my and his God. pinkies on the twelfth yeah. fret. It's like how the fuck is yeah. he even? 
doing that. Well, oh, totally. And you know what I mean? Totally. I love that. I love that answer. You know, I Tim and I and and my band we have very very different styles, so we accentuate and complement. And it's the same thing. It's kind of like, well, if you have two guitar players, why would you ever play the same thing at the same time? All that's going to do is make it louder. But even if it's a similar thing, what he's doing, you can do what you just said. And let's maybe you're playing the top of the chord. He's playing the bottom of the chord or whatever. You know, you can yeah. you can really use that and orchestrate that to the betterment of the song. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We, I, we, we really think about it, too, in, um, in terms of our tone, where it's like our tones are similar where, where we can lend it, where you can't even tell who's playing what. But we approach our pedal boards in really different ways where it's like if I have like some sort of like echo sort of, you know, I might use like a tape echo-ish sort of thing if John's using like a really like hi-fi digital like delay or something. Or, you know, like if John's using like a pitch shifter, if he's using like a bit commander or something for like low end stuff, I will use an Octavia in order to get out of the range so that we can have a little bit of freedom and it kind of keeps things from getting too cluttered because at this point we know like our tones are split enough that we can, we can do different things. And we also, you know, the greatest thing about YouTube and stuff has been like being able to like go on tour and sit and like watch your shows afterwards. Yeah. And like be like, oh my God. I remember what it felt like when I did this and it felt so cool, but it sounds horrible. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. You know? It's almost like with sports where they watch the highlight reel or whatever they watch after the game to like see where they can better. I do it yeah. and a lot of the times it's the same <sighs> things like, oh shit, I forgot I fucked that up. Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> and then you hear it, you're like, there it is. Shit. Yeah, I, I I thought it was like king of the world at this moment, mm. but it's just like was like this sputtering sound. And so when I first started doing like Deerhoof with John, more so than than our, our previous project, I like could really see those that we had like very similar tendencies of like you know, um, oh, like John's doing something wild and fast. Of course, I want to do something wild and fast too yeah. because he's getting to do it, you know. But then it just sounds like there's nothing going on, you know. And so I would watch all these videos and realize that it's like, you know, the moments that you have to show restraint, the moments that you can do things. And like um, my heart would break sometimes because I would watch it and like Satomi, our, our bass player, singer, would be like, would just be like, the only person playing the song still like she would be like a, a, a rock like playing her bass line over and over while all three of the guys are just like so ah, right. you know like going yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> completely nuts like going free and doing like do, messing with time and doing everything and she's just like <laughs> yeah and then i was just like i can't let her be the only one like doing this so i really learned more to choose my moments and like to make a you know like exactly what you're doing it's like if we do play something together to have that be the effect not have it be you know not because we can't think of something else or you know like yeah. <laughs> well you know and i read it a long time ago it was uh bob weir talking about grateful dead and he said that him and jerry garcia always weaved you know they always and i always yeah. like that i always like that they're always weaving in and out of each other and they're always like uh, you know, whatever this guy's doing, I'm going to sit back and maybe do the rhythm part. And then I'm going to, and it's constantly happening. And I was like, man, you can apply that to any style of music, really, if there's more than one guitar player or more than one guy playing whatever instrument. But I definitely heard that in your music. And like I said, it's so well-crafted and orchestrated uh, guitar-wise. Well, you, everybody in your band is a phenomenal musician. But I was really taken with that because I was, you know, researching you specifically for this, but also I've just thought you were a great player for a very long time. Um, Oh, by the way, it is Ed Rodriguez from the Great Deerhoof guys. This is my guest. Uh, I, I just <laughs> dove right in. <laughs> if you're just joining us, yeah. Ed Rodriguez. Um, we'll, we'll dance around a little bit. So you guys uh, just, you have a new release, correct? Or did that just come out or just recently? 
Yeah, um, we had a new album, uh, Miracle Level, which just came out, um, I think, maybe like two, three weeks ago okay. or something. And your so. tour, going to be touring for that? Yeah, we had been, you know, uh, like a lot of people, it's been a real mellow past couple of years, and we've been slowly making our way back into touring. And um, so this year is like the first year where, you know, still it's like we're doing a fraction of the amount of touring that we we had been doing like pre-pandemic, but... Sure. but um, but it's nice to be getting back out there. Yeah, I mean, you know, for us, it was like it was slow. And then it we kind of put the pedal to the metal and went and got out there and just like, fuck it. Let's just, you know, whatever. Let's go for it. <laughs> and, you know, I watched you know, your rig rundown that was from a few years ago. Are you still touring with like the quilter amp and things? Are you still going small? Because I, everything's going small. <laughs> Yeah, when some of the companies first started, like, you know, like I think Vox did the Night Train, Orange did the Tiny Terror, there was a few companies that started to like go into the smaller amps. I got really excited because I was like, oh my God, finally, you know, like I hope this becomes the trend because really it just works for us. So uh, yeah, we're still doing small things. We, we do use the quilters still. Um, we do like when I'm home, I never play through solid state stuff. It's all like I, I have like all tube amps and um, like really it's just kind of like trying to make the best of the situation. Uh, none of us live in the same city. And when we tour the U.S., we have different gear set up in different locations. Like John lives in Minneapolis. He's got a certain set of gear. Our sound person lives in uh, New York. So there he has got like um, some heads and stuff that we use. But when we do fly ins, we still take the little like quilters and uh, and like we both use like those Empress of parametric EQs yeah. because, you know, um, the default is always like the Marshall 412, which is super bassy. And, mm -hmm. you know, so you just like we still bring EQs to these things just to be able to carve everything out. But yeah. we've gotten it to where it can work. I can like just grab a bag, you know, and, 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 uh, awesome. and the guitar. I'm, 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 I want to go smaller. I'm, I'm like on the verge of like doing like a Steinberger or something. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, I had a friend that said he wanted to just make a fly rig that was like, the line six pod, like just the pod, yeah. remember the, like the red bean kind of looking pod and a, and a Steinberger in a case. And then that's, yeah, yeah. and you just line in direct in with those things and they are done. You know, you got everything I'm, I'm doing the Kemper profiler now. And I was real reticent to go to that. I was like real late to the game. And I mean, I've still got my Marshall stuff. I've still got all that stuff, Yeah. but we just did South America and I did it with the Kemper and man, I got to say, I, I did it with a Kemper and an analog pedal board. And I, you'd be hard pressed to know the difference. I mean, you really would. It was like, you know, we're on ears and all that shit. And so I ran just the regular 800 profile that was already in the Kemper and I dialed a little more gain into it because we're kind of gainy. And there was things I liked about it more. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. It, it, I, I've heard good things about that one. And, uh, and it is a thing where it's just kind of like, you know, sometimes it's a mental shift where it's like, you, you know, you you learn what sounds good with this. Like, what other pedal do I need? Like, I use the quilter, but I have an EQ, and then I'm using a, a Klon KTR as like an always-on. Like, Oh, yeah. I've got one of those. Yeah, yeah. So um, Best. Oh, yeah. We met Bill a few years ago, and, and he, like, gave me and John one. And, Amazing. Yeah. Shit. <laughs> I know. Just I, those KTRs are expensive. They were like, when I I bought mine, it was like 350 and now they're like <laughs> fucking, they're not as much as, like, the original Klon. No, God, it's damn. crazy. It's yeah. Like, it's like, I, I would never, I like, that's been my go-to always on, um, you know, pedal. So I wouldn't get rid of it. But like somebody mentioned that to me and I looked at a quick search and I was like, oh my goodness. If they, it's yeah. fucking nuts. <laughs> it's nuts. Yeah. Uh, well, and I also noticed, so one thing I think is so cool and what we could spend the whole podcast talking about this company, but you do have the signature Eastwood yeah. Deerhoof guitar that's based on the Ampeg uh, AUB. 
Um, yeah, I can't remember what. I've always thought that base was so. Oh cool. my god. It's funny because I've never really saw, like, I actually, you know, never saw one in real life and didn't realize that they're, like, these massive, <laughs> like, monsters, yeah. you know, like, with the scroll headstock and the beautiful guitar, like, such a great idea. But, yeah, we, we met Mike from Eastwood, I think, man, like, over 10 years ago at one of the, like, All Tomorrow's Parties in New York uh, festivals, and we played... And there was this guy right in front of the stage, like freaking out and stuff. And he was like, <laughs> and, uh, and we finished playing and he comes up to me after the show and he's like, I want to give you a guitar. And I was like, yeah, okay, whatever. I don't know. Like I never heard of Eastwood at that time. And he gave me a sticker, an Eastwood sticker. And I was like, oh, all right. So then I, I went back to the hotel room and I like, you know, brought the site up and I like started and I was like, oh my God, these are pretty cool. So he gave me one of the Eastwood tuxedos and that's a, like, it's a semi hollow with the stacked P90s. And that guitar sounded so good. It was just, so that was like my main guitar for Deerhoof for years. And I really loved it. And, um, and he was just like, he was the sweetest guy, nicest guy, like, and such a genuine music lover. It was yeah. like, he was, you can he tell was just, just by the projects they do. You can tell that that guy knows what he's doing and he's an actual music fan for anyone that doesn't know Eastwood is, I don't, I wouldn't call them a, it's not a bark. It's, it's, they're made in Japan, China. I'm not even sure. I think, yeah, like if it's if it was Korea or 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 Japan or but yeah. But they take guitars that were maybe limited production runs or things that uh, you know companies from the '60s or '70s or '80s, and they'll take these guitars that maybe you saw in magazines back then that you haven't, you know, that went away. And then he is such a, a music fan; he knows about them and he makes them again. Yeah. So. But he'll do the coolest, like the Deerhoof model or the John McGeoch from Public Image Limited and Susie oh, yeah. Sue and the Banshees and, and magazine he made. And it basically it's a Yamaha SG uh, 2000 or whatever, and it's the John McGeoch model. But he also does fan-funded models. You know, like if you can get enough people to vote on it, they did like Pete <laughs> Shelley from the Buzzcocks' first yeah, yeah. pawn shot guitar yeah. that was sawed in half <laughs> yeah. or the Devo <laughs> models, the, the Devo guy models. It's, it's just such a cool company. It really is. And and it's like such a, a unique thing where if you think about it, like what is it going to be in like 20 years where it's like there are these guitars that exist that there was only like 20 made of them, you know, <laughs> it's like it's like so cool, you know, and right. it's just like really listening to people. And uh, I did an interview or something. I wrote an article about about DIY aesthetics or something like that. And uh, and we were on tour and then Mike read it and it just sort of like connected with them. And so he wrote me an email and he was like, he was like, Hey, uh, do you want to do a Ed Rodriguez signature model? You know? And I was like, well, nobody knows who Ed Rodriguez is. So I said, let's do it like a deer hoof guitar, you know, yeah, like, yeah. Uh, you know, like, cause that makes more sense. Plus it's also like, you know, it felt weird. Cause it's like, John's like insane guitarist, you know, like, so it's like, why just, why just have it represent like one of, you know, like sort of things. So it turned into like this group project where we all were talking about it then. And so Mike at the time, he was like, we're, we're kind of, um, our big one right now is these Mosrite bodies. So why don't you start from the Mosrite body and choose pickups, do that kind of thing? So I went to the website and started looking through, and they had their they had that copy of the of the Ampeg base on there. Yeah. And I saw that, and I was like, I've always loved that body. I think that's a cool. So I wrote Mike right away. I was like, Do you think you could scale that down to be a guitar? And he was like, That's a great idea. I, I, so he he went ahead and did it. And we put the same P90s in it that were in the um, in the tuxedo because I like those so much and. It's such a cool looking guitar. Yeah, it, it's great. And it's like, and it was like really important to me, you know, like um, one, one of the big Deerhoof motto things is like, do the most with what you have sort of thing. Like, like whenever we meet younger people on tour, 
we're really big, like pushing that whole thing of like, learn to record yourself, learn to do everything yourself. Don't wait, don't wait to do anything. Like if you play guitar and your best friend plays tuba, start a band, that's the two of you. Don't feel like you need a drummer, you need this. Because all of us have done that, where you sit around and wait for six months, a year, trying to like get a band together or like several years trying to find a label for an album or something. It's just like, there's so much about these things of just like, you can do these things. And uh, so like a big part of working with Eastwood too, was I was like, as a person who has never spent more than like 450 bucks on a guitar, I was mm -hmm. like, I didn't want them to be like, like if we have any sway out with anybody, any young people, I don't want to, like we've been approached by like big guitar companies yeah. that like make the two $3,000 guitar. And I was like, if I have any influence on anyone, I don't want to make them feel like they should buy this $3,000 guitar. Cause I wouldn't buy it. Cause I can't yeah. buy it, you know? Yeah, so, yeah. so he kept them affordable. He did this thing and uh and it was just like everything like everything we talked to him about it he was like right there and completely just like super supportive but you know ed i think that that ethic i'm so glad you explained that because that your ethic toward being in a band and toward your art and toward your life and everything that makes you more punk rock than most punk rockers that i know because yeah <laughs> i mean most guys in bands i know they would have gone for the fender or the gibson or whatever you know and you went for a company that people can actually fucking afford you know another thing that guy did and i don't know him and i would love to meet him but he offered like artist cost for any Austin, I live in Austin, Texas. I'm from Texas. He offered artist costs. And imagine he did that for a lot of scenes oh, for yeah. <laughs> all of the local musicians. If you could go in and prove that you were a working musician, you got an artist cost on an Eastwood guitar. It was yeah. amazing. He, he amazing. still gives me stuff I bought. I just, you know, a couple of years ago, I bought one of the Saturn bass, um, you know, hollow body bass for costs. Like that's it. He's just like, amazing. All, like always just like anything I want, you know, like cost. And, and it's just, uh, yeah, it was so funny actually that, it, this was a long time ago, you know, this was when they were first starting out, but um, he gave me that free guitar and uh, and he was like, don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody I gave you. And then we were we were at the beginning of a tour and we, we went, we like toured for like a few more weeks. And I think I ran into three other people that he gave guitars to that he was like, he was like, don't let anybody know I'm giving like, and then it's like, you're, I don't have to tell anybody you're, you're giving, you're giving all these bands guitars. You're you know? like the Johnny Appleseed <laughs> yeah, of yeah. giving guitars. Yeah. 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 <laughs> what a great guy then, man. I mean, it's using people, good people doing good things, using the powers for good, not evil. Yeah. I mean, like Earthquaker Devices is a company like that is where it's like, I feel really good, like meeting these people and like finding out they're just like music lover, that it's stemming from like, no matter how big it builds, it's always coming from like just a few people in a room who are just like, love music and love bands and do all these things. And yeah. And you know, most of the people that I work with also, you know, and, and sponsor the show, there's the people at MXR and Jim Dunlop, which is a big company, but the people that you talk to, the people you deal with are people just that you want to hang out with, you want to talk to that, yeah. you know, that want to do things for artists and want to help out and see more Duncan people same way. You know, and if you know, if you talk to the people, you know, if it feels weird and you're like, oh, I don't know about this, I'd rather go with somebody else uh, to switch gears a little bit. So who were your guys when you got started? Who were like the, the guitars that you made you want to pick up an instrument or maybe that still make you want to yeah. are compelling you to do it? Well, I started out playing organ when I was really young and my, my dad was actually a guitarist, but he was uh, coming more from like um, playing like. Mexican music, like more like um, like the sort of boleros of the of the fifties, and you know, like trios los panchos and hermanos martinos uh, and uh, like los tres Ases, los tres diamantes, like all of the trio like vocal things with the super virtuosic guitar, yeah, yeah, stuff. So that's all I heard growing up. 
but um, I never had any, and he played guitar and he had a band that played too, um, but he stopped playing in the band by the time I was born, but um, he was super supportive with me being a musician. So I played organ and then I never had any desire to play guitar. I don't know what, it, like why. And then when I was 13, I just woke up one day and my dad was like, I signed you up for guitar lessons. We're going to go down and buy you a, a guitar and an amp. So, you know, he took me down to a pawn shop, bought me a $50, like crooked neck Les Paul copy. And I started taking, um, I loved it immediately. And just, whereas I hated practicing organ, I, I had to practice a half hour a day. I hated it. Once I got a guitar all day, Sure. Just took it to school with me, did everything, like went and lunch, everything. I just like loved it. But like the initial first thing I heard was Hendrix. Sure. It was really like the feedback. <laughs> it mm -hmm. was just like all the feedback stuff was just like, I had no idea. Like, what is this? Yeah. yeah. Somehow he's like some sort of like, you know, magician, like moving, moving sound around the room with like this. Um, so when I first started, it was like, I was like a blues baby. It was all like, you know, like Freddie King, like Albert King and, and uh, um, I, you know, Steve Ray Vaughan. Um, I was lucky enough to see Steve Ray Vaughan like two, three times, Johnny Winter. Uh, that was like everything I listened to. But like, I was always most drawn to like stuff that I heard that I had no idea what was going on. Yeah. So like I would learn all these blues songs and then I would detune the guitar and then play all the blues licks and then record myself. And then I would tune the guitar back up to normal. And then I would learn all of the blues licks, but it would be like all atonal and weird, That's but it would awesome. be like, with, 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 but it would be with like blues phrasing. Cause it was like, I loved the feel of the blues, but I didn't like, like the note. I didn't like the way it sounded really. Sure. Sure. <laughs> um, and I started writing right, right away and immediately was like writing like all odd times and I didn't realize it. So um, my guitar teacher at the time was like, you sound like Robert Fripp. And I didn't know who Robert oh, Fripp was. Yeah. So I was like, so I went and I bought a copy of Robert Fripp Exposure, um, which was, which was funny because it was like, it was a, um, the first song on the album is like a joke song, kind of like, a, it's a, like a, it's like a blues song. And yeah. it's like, it's like, you burn me up. I'm a cigarette. It's like, da, da, da. and I was like, put this in. I'm like, you think this is what I sound like, you know? <laughs> and I threw it in the desk and I didn't listen to it for months. And then I finally, I put it in again and it got to the second song, which was like this like total King Crimson me, like, dig -a -dig -a, you know, like, like totally intense. Thing. I, I'm in, a, I'm in a frip, I'm in a frip rabbit hole right now. Actually, oh yeah. Which is Inc funny, but oh my God, I'm, I'm actually doing a deep dive in the eighties, the, like the discipline era. That's the period. That's, I love that stuff. Discipline and red were like my big ones. And I, the Adrian blue, um, frip connection was everything I, like, you know, and talk about weaving in the guitar, you know, like in the song, uh, frame by frame, how the riff starts and then Baloo comes in on, you know, his one is, is, is on, yeah. you know, Frips two, and then they start playing it out of sync and then they sync it back. Yeah. And then they play it out of sync again. Oh my God. It ties your mind in half. It's oh, amazing. totally. And I hear that. I do hear that reference in you. I mean, even though I know it was like when you were a kid, but I still hear some Fripp in there. Oh yeah. Like I didn't even realize King Crimson existed. Like I think we're, we're near the same age, but I learned like a lot through just reading about music instead of like hearing it because you couldn't find anything. So, so I was reading, I read a magazine that mentioned somebody talking about like uh, seeing King Crimson was like an overwhelming sense of pure evil. And I was like, oh, I got to hear this. Yeah, 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 exactly. That's uh, everything for me was about like the heaviness. So I, I found a vinyl of King Crimson USA which was like a group in like 69 or 60, I think. And it was like live and it was all violins all out of tune and like everything's just like 
sounds like all hell's breaking loose. And I was just that like old, that old, the older stuff, like the first lineup, like, like Court of Crimson King, that era yeah. or Lark's Tongue or whatever. Woof, man, that stuff, there is something so evil about it. So foreboding. Like, I feel like that you have to like be aware of what were these first things that got me into this in the first place. And that's your core. That's like, so for me, it was like Hendrix. It was noise. It was this recklessness. It was this kind of like, it was this kind of natural, like breathing, this sort of like, and, and so like, for me, it was like the King Crimson that I found the most exciting was the stuff that did seem like it was like going to fall apart or the stuff like with Baloo, where it was, there was technical players, but Baloo gave it this sense of like, of like chaos and just like fun and just like everything. Like I, I kind of lost Crimson like when it got pure tech, like, cause I don't really care about like things being like pristine and, and like everybody like being able to do like these perfect groupings of five notes or, you know, like, right. cause at my core, I'm like a, I'm a messy rock punk guy and I'm fascinated by music and I love all these things, but it's like, it's gotta be raw and it's gotta be like, yeah. it's gotta be like reckless yeah. and yeah. <laughs> But you think about it, if, if somebody gets into King Crimson, what a great domino effect, because from Crimson, you can make the sort of uh, the leap into prog rock, of course, with, you know, uh, Bill Bruford and yes. And, and you know, uh, but then through Fripp, of course, you have, you know, Fripp played with Bowie. Yeah. Baloo <laughs> played with the Talking Heads, yeah. Frank Zappa and Bowie. Uh, and then, you know, if you keep going down the rabbit hole with Crimson, you get into William Riflin, who was in every industrial band in the fucking world, <laughs> you know, pick pace, pick pace totally, ministry. Yeah. I mean, it's like you can get into such a great swath of music just by starting totally. King Crimson, you know. I, I found a book on John Cage when I was younger and like I ne had never heard any of his music, but just his like sort of fierce like individualism made a huge impact on me. Like there was like just a few quotes that I came across of his where it was like, where they were just like such extreme statements. Like one was like two people making the same music as one music too many. And it's just <laughs> like, and it was just these things of like, we get the most done by not doing what has already been done. So it was like this thing of like, where they're, they're like these grand statements, which someone like him was a actually able to do. I've, but it was like this feeling of just like, trying to fight those urges of just like, I love Hendrix. I would love to have a band that sounds just like Hendrix, but I want to, I got to figure out what my deal is. Who, I, who am right. I? What do I do that? And it's that struggle all of us are going through, go, you know, as musicians, it's like, what am I? Who am I? You yeah, know, I, I mean, as one musician to the, to the other, you definitely have a signature and a discernible sound. I, we all do that though. You know, I've questioned myself so many times, like, what am I bringing to this? Like, what do I do? You know, yeah. you do that all the time. Yeah. I've definitely had the domino effect and like, the, like there's been a few people that have been huge, like, like um, around that time period, like I didn't hear much music. I was an MTV kid. So I was only yeah. hearing a lot of like music through that. So, so my exposure was like, like living color, Vernon Reed. The, I like, loved, I loved my God. living color. Ver, like Vernon Reed, like, the, like that, that when it hits that solo, when it first time seeing cult of personality and when yes. it hits that solo and he's just it's just, just free jazz. It's just it's, total it's free. free it's jazz. Just, because he'd been in yeah. the, the decoding society. Yeah, decode. That's exactly what I'm uh, like. All those Ronald Chan, like I, I found Vernon. I found that. I found decoding, Ronald Chan Jackson, all these things. Then through Ronald Chan Jackson, I found AACM. I found Anthony Braxton. I found, I yeah. found yeah, like yeah, Sun yeah. Rock, blah, blah, blah. And it was just like, and it was all Vernon Reed. <laughs> yeah, and somehow, and yeah, you, know, you end up and you're in Sun Rock. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, from, yeah, from, yeah, yeah. But it all makes sense. And, and it it's like funny. Yeah, it's all, it's funny because. Like um, somebody like Vernon Reed, who can do these things, it's like 
you know, um, there are certain musicians that it does make all sense. There's other people who, you know, there's some people that it's like, I like this and none of that makes sense to me. But then you have people like, you know, who, who it's, yeah, it is all connected and it is all just about like, finding something new and yeah like for and and vernon reed actually changed my life in a huge way because um i was like uh, in my teen years i didn't know what i wanted to be i didn't know what like um i had gotten to a point where i loved practicing but i didn't know what to practice or why i was practicing it so i was like really into all the shredders of the day like steve vai and joe satriani like paul gilbert racer like all those bands and it, a lot of it was just the sheer um, it was kind of like seeing what humans are capable of, you know, and like sometimes that's like shocking and just like, wow, people can do this kind of thing. And so I thought that that that's what I was supposed to do. So I would do the like Steve Vai, like 12 hour a day practice routine of just like going one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, one, like down the fret up. And I would set metronome markings and do it the next day and move them up. And uh, and I was doing this because I didn't know what who I was or what I wanted to be. And at some point. I was blazingly fat, like insanely fat. And I would listen to recordings of myself and I hate, and it was weird because it was like my favorite guitarists were like Sonny Chirac and, uh, you know, and Vernon Reed and all these, you know, like people that there was slop, there was like every note they played, there was like noise around it. You know, sure. it, was like, right. it wasn't like this pristine thing. And so at some point I was just like, um, oh, and then I read an, art, an interview with Vernon Reed, who was the first time I heard anybody say anything remotely like this was Vernon Reed saying um, that music is a reflection of your life. And if your life is just sitting in a room practicing, what are you saying with that music? Right. And I was just like, yeah, you know, like, holy crap. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and it was like, I had never thought of like, I, I had never thought of my life having anything to do with my music. <laughs> like that, it, that there was any connection between who I was and what I wanted to, and like, what I, was I saying? What was I doing anything? And then it, it just made me rethink everything. I stopped that kind of practicing. I yeah. stopped trying to be the fastest guy and everything just changed. And, and I started like kind of trying to be able to, to like try and figure out why I was doing this and who, you know, and what then I start to writing do. your own music instead yeah, of yeah. trying to play somebody else's. And that's the truth. I mean, you know, if you look at uh, Jimmy Page, you know, he always had the thing where he was like, quote unquote, sloppy, but he's also Jimmy fucking Page. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's always that thing. And then, you know, and I think it affected me. I also grew up with the shredder thing and it sort of stunted me in so many ways, because even to this day, like you and I were talking before we were recording, you know, if you fuck up, which you're going to do and you're in my, uh, you know, uh, God forbid, play sloppy or whatever. I, I, I've caught myself so many times by thinking about Vernon Reed or Jimmy Page or somebody like that. Like, you know, they didn't give a shit. Oh, absolutely you know? not. <laughs> they were expressing themselves. They were in the moment. That's what came out. That's what happened. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, more power to you if you can play a, yeah. a show and, and not be. But I mean, if you lose yourself in the music and you're like, it's, it's more of an expression anyway, it's, it's going to yeah. happen. Yeah. Well, you know, it was a thing of like, uh, of course, it's like there's a million reasons to do music and everybody has different goals and like why they got into it and like what they connect with. And it's just like, like trying to figure out like, why did I get into this? What do I want? You know, I thought I wanted to be a jazz guitarist. And then I realized I am horrible at this. I, I will never add anything to this genre. I am a generic jazz guitarist and I don't actually like jazz. <laughs> you know, like, 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 yeah. like I was, I was learning like straight ahead jazz, you know, like thinking that like, cause, uh, cause that's what you were supposed to do is like play changes and do all this stuff. But I was like, like no part of me as actually feels this. 
And it was a struggle. And not until my like 20s, like where I was finally able to be like, I am a rock guitarist. Like it was like some sort of confessional meet, you know, like where I was like, my name is Ed. I'm a rock guitarist. I'm a punk, <laughs> like, I have a punk rock core. I'm like, this, yeah. is, this is who I am. And <laughs> I for one am glad that you realized that. Ed. Oh, I am, thanks. I for thanks. One, I'm very glad that you realized that. You know, I ask everybody, do you have something that got away? Do you have a piece of gear, a guitar, amp, something that got stolen or you had to hawk or? It's funny because I'm I've kept pretty much everything you know that I've ever had like even my first guitar first pedal oh, right. first everything um, I still have them because some part of me is just like I might need this you know like and I get yeah. you know in some way um, I did have one guitar stolen and it was shortly after I bought it it was an Ibanez um, F80 ballback. Uh, it was a super limited thing it was a wood grain Telecaster with a curved back. Whoa. And uh, it looked like a telly, like a weird futuristic telly with the wood grain pick guard. No um, shit. Like the, the Ibanez like blade tremolo, like so, um, and then the classic Ibanez like pointy headstock. Was What year was this, do you think? What year? I think it was like 80s. It was, eight, yeah, 580B. Wow. It was, uh, yeah, 580B ball back. Ball back. That's crazy. You know, I, I know my 80s shredder guitars and like, I've never even, I don't, it's nothing. It's crazy. I just moved to Minneapolis in like 91 to try and go to school there. And, uh, and some guy gave me a ride to Best Buy or something. And we went in and came back out. And there was like a bunch of people standing around his truck who were just like, two kids just smashed the window and took your guitar. And I was like, hey, thanks, guys. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> like, Great. So these kids like took the smash the window, you know, like. Took, have took you my... looked, have you looked for not that specific one, but have you ever, have you ever <laughs> looked for, you know, another one? I've looked for that specific guitar because <laughs> like, I actually put up flyers and stuff, you know, like, um, like after that happened. And then, and then I've looked online and like, you know, once, once eBay and stuff popped up, cause I was just kind of like, I still got the serial number and stuff. I'm just waiting for one to pop on, on eBay in, in Minnesota. But, you know, yeah. um, but I, I was like, okay, I'm, I'll let it go at this point. But I did have one of my, an old bandmate uh, almost bought it for me. And I was like, no, no it's okay. I, I'm <laughs> That's awesome. Secret, yeah. 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 I was just like my other 30, plus guitars will get me by. <laughs> yeah well i think you know dear hope for going on tour soon man somebody might yeah, hear this yeah. and go you know i have one in a closet man yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah yeah well i won't keep you too much longer ed but man ed, thank you so much for doing this and uh oh, yeah. again it was a real honor and, and i so appreciate you uh giving me the time yeah. you guys have the new records so everybody go check that out and you're gonna tour so everybody check that out yeah we're gonna be right out like yeah. back at it are you, are you coming through austin texas uh um end of the year so like, oh. i'll reach out yeah Red, please do please do well it's nice to make new friends ed and uh yeah we'll talk to you soon man sounds good thanks you see what i'm saying me and ed man it's wonderful to meet somebody that also does this what i do uh, although a very different type of music but you feel like you've known each other forever you know Ed and I have a very similar energy, as I'm also realizing a lot of guitar players as I do these podcast, this podcast and these interviews. We have, a, we have a similar energy, and I felt like I could talk to him all day. I felt like I'd known him forever. And that's why I love doing this podcast, folks. I, it's happened a, f a bunch on here. If you've listened, you, you know. Yeah, so, you know, I, I'm going to go ahead and thank the folks at, here at the end uh, at the uh, Jim Dunlop and MXR Pedals and find out what they're doing at jimdunlop.com. Also, the great people over at Seymour Duncan. Uh, and I, as usual, I would be remiss not to leave you with some uh, 
an example of Ed's wonderful guitar playing. Um, Ed and I talked after uh, the the interview, and I asked him what he would like me to leave people with. You know, because sometimes I ask, and sometimes I just I go with the songs that I like. But Ed wanted me to showcase this song, which is called "Scarcity Is Manufactured." Uh, and it's off the Actually You Can record that came out in 2021. Man, they just put a record out in 2021, and now there's a new record out called uh, Miracle Level in 2023. Just what a prolific band. Uh, this song, Ed said it's sort of a musical embodiment of who he is because Ed is a Mexican-American, and he said this song is basically him rewriting La Bamba, which La Bamba was Richie Valens, making a hit you know and selling it to the white american audience of a classic mexican song that he grew up with and so this is ed doing that but he he changes the time signature it it, it speaks to two, the two sides of him because he you know he said he he used to identify with folks because they were just weirdos like himself they were just musicians or they were into punk or they were into metal and he still does that so he made this odd time signature weirdo take on La Bamba, which is speaks to his Latin roots and his Hispanic uh, heritage. So check this song out. Uh, Scarcity is manufactured. Keep checking out Antiheroes. I'll keep doing it. And I just really appreciate each and every one of you. Thank you so much. Thank you. 